Hello, this is episode 218 and in it I'm going to take a slightly different direction. Now this is very different to the episode that I had originally planned for 218. I, I was going to share a list of the checklists that I believe every renovation or new build project needs and don't worry I'm still going to mention those in this episode. I've got that info for you. Stay tuned for that because that will come at the end of the episode. However, there's a few things that have come up in the past week that I want to share with you, largely because I actually think it might be more relevant and more helpful for your project journey than me talking to you about checklists. However, this info, it's just a bit harder for me to talk about because I'm going to get personal and it always feels a bit indulgent to spend this time with you talking about my own learnings and my own experience. Um, but <laughs> let's give it a try, hey? You know, time and time again, when I actually do do episodes like this or I bring this into Undercover Architects uh, information and emails and blog posts, I get feedback that it's helpful, you know. And having worked with homeowners for over 25 years now, I know that you're often experiencing quite similar things both inside your project and outside of it as well. So to bring these things into the light, they can be helpful and validating as well. Now, of course, if you're not interested in this, you don't want to learn anything more about Amelia Lee, the person behind Undercover Architect, then uh, now's your opportunity to switch this podcast off or just speed through to the end to catch the uh, checklist information. Um, I have that information. I've got eight checklists that I want to talk through with you and I've got those at the end of this episode. Now, you can also grab a full transcript of this episode plus other information and helpful links and resources related to this topic uh, in a free PDF download that I've got for you and you can grab that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 218. That's 218, the number's 218. Now, let's dive in. Welcome to the Get It Right podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. With over 25 years industry experience, I've worked with loads of homeowners like you to create family homes that work, feel great, and that you feel great in. I'm a wife and a mum to three kids who, thanks to our own renovations, they all learned to climb ladders before they walked. And I'm a registered architect who is passionate about you feeling informed, educated and empowered as you design, build or renovate your home. Now, if you're up for some frank and open conversation about the true nitty gritty of designing, building and renovating based on professional and personal experience across hundreds and hundreds of homes, well, you're in the right place. Undercover Architect is an award-winning online business and resource that began in mid-2014, and it's all about teaching you how to create a fantastic, feel-good family home, one that works for you now and into the future, one that is sustainable and affordable, and that helps you live a great lifestyle, both in and beyond your home. So whether you're renovating or building, whoever you're working with, and whatever your dreams, your location, or your budget, consider Undercover Architect your secret ally in helping and teaching you how to get it right. Now, before we jump into this podcast episode, a quick shout out to my sponsors. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by me and my free online workshop, Your Project Plan. I actually created this online workshop because I so regularly see a lot of time and money get wasted in renovation and building projects. And this happens largely because homeowners just don't know what they're supposed to be doing next. So that makes it really easy to make missteps, to take the wrong advice, or to actually skip important parts of your project that will catch you out down the track. Or worse, mean that you miss out on things that you really wanted in your home. 
Learn how to avoid serious and expensive mistakes, what to do next whatever stage you're at in your project, and also access some great bonuses too by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. And that's project plan spelled P-R-O-J-E-C-T P-L-A-N. That's undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. Take the guesswork out of the next steps you need to take in your project journey and sign up today for free for this great online workshop. And now let's get on with the episode. Here we go. So I've titled this podcast episode, Why Do We Do What We Do When We Know What We Know? Now that's a bit of a mouthful of a saying. It's, a, it's quite a long question, but it's one that I first heard a few years ago and it's really stuck with me. Why do we do what we do when we know what we know? It captures the essence of how we really behave in our everyday lives, you know, even when that can be at odds with the knowledge that we have and the things that we've learned. And even when it can be at odds with the things that we say we want to do. Now, I've personally lost a lot of weight over this past year, around 20 kilos. Now, this has been the total weight that I have put on over the past seven years plus since starting Undercover Architect. It ends up that sitting in front of a computer for many hours a day and trying to build a business and, you know, all the things that come with that, it's not conducive to keeping weight off and it just snuck on and on. And, you know, whilst it frustrated me, uh, over that time, I felt that I just really needed to focus on family and the business and keeping things going. However, at the beginning of this year, I caught a look at myself in a Christmas photograph and that was the motivation that I needed to just start focusing on my health and my well-being. And, you know, whilst it's been really great to lose the weight, there's nothing like having to sort of change your everyday behaviour and habits that really challenges your mindset and your identity. And I've noticed a couple of things and it's largely to do with this saying of why we do what we do, you know, why do we do what we do when we know what we know. Now, why was I not prioritizing my health and my well-being when, you know, I know that if that's not in check, the whole business really falls over. I know that being healthy was and is important. I'm the breadwinner. Um, I, our family's financial position currently depends on me being well. So, you know, me being well should be a priority, shouldn't it? As a business owner, let alone as a mom and a wife and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I've got so many homeowners who've invested in programs and courses that I've created and are trusting me to help them in their project journey. And so I see that I've got a responsibility to this community as well, which means that I've got a responsibility to keep myself well and healthy. But I kept making choices that didn't really reflect that knowledge. You know, I was doing things that were counter to this knowing. I'm working all hours, not exercising, you know, and for the longest time, I have seen stress as a fuel for me. I've actually really liked that I could get stressed and just get things done. Um, whereas a good friend of mine, who's also a naturopath reminded me that it's actually something I should be trying to lower in my life, that it's not very good for you. So, you know, but I just kept thinking I didn't have the time. And that's another saying that I've recently adopted as well, because whenever I say I don't have the time, what I'm really saying is it's not a priority right now, because if you're like me, you'll know that you can be a total magician at making time available for the things that you really want when they're a priority to you. So when you're saying I don't have enough time, you know, and this is something that I learned to do and I still continue to do, it's really about being honest about your priorities. If you switch it out next time you catch yourself saying it, you know, so when you go to say, oh, I don't have the time, instead say, that's not a priority for me right now. It can be really confronting at first, especially when it's your child or your husband wanting, you know, asking you about something and you say, I don't have the time, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, this is not a priority for me right now. 
But it, it, it can also be an opportunity to get really curious about what you're really prioritizing in your life and why you're prioritizing it. Now, I watched a TED talk on the weekend by a guy named Peter Sage, and I'm going to read you the blurb from the TED video so you can learn a bit more about what the video is about. What would you do if you uh, became the only non-criminal locked up in Britain's most violent prison? That's exactly, that's exactly what happened to Peter Sage. His world was turned upside down when he served six months as the only civil prisoner in one of the UK's toughest jails, but ended up winning acclaim, friends and a national award for his work that changed the lives of many prisoners. In this TEDx talk, Peter shares his story along with how you can deal with the toughest situations and become your best when life gives you its worst. Now, it's a 16-minute talk. I can highly recommend watching it. I'm going to include a link uh, for it in the resources for this episode. There's been one thing in particular he said that's really been ringing in my ears since I watched this talk on the weekend. And then with what's happened over the past week in Undercover Architect, it's really been the motivator for changing up the content of this episode. I'm going to paraphrase what Peter was talking about. So he was speaking about how we seek to upskill incarcerated people in order to help them to be rehabilitated for life beyond prison. So we educate them, but ultimately it doesn't really change the underlying behaviour or change their identity. And it's one of the reasons that the rate of recidivism is so high and that so many just end up back in jail and back in the system. And he said that this is because behaviour follows mindset, not education. I'm going to say that again. Behaviour follows mindset, not education. Now, if I look at that in the context of my initial question where I asked, why do we do what we do when we know what we know? Our doing is obviously the behavioural piece, but our knowing, that's the education piece. And when we behave in a way that's counter to our knowledge, I know personally for me, it's because my mindset wasn't truly on board with what I was being educated in. So what does this have to do with you and your renovating or building plans? I'm getting there, I promise, but I'm going to say this right now. From what I know and have learned from working with hundreds and hundreds of homeowners and also interacting regularly with thousands and thousands more, it's this, and you may have heard me say this before. The way that you do life is the way that you build or renovate your home and the way that you build or renovate your home is the way that you do life. Now, this is why I've had episodes on communication strategies. It's why I did the 10 Things I Love About You episode to celebrate the 200 episodes. It's why I brought Lisa Cordoff on to talk about the stories that we tell ourselves that can sabotage our projects. And if behaviour follows mindset, then your mindset is critical to how you embark on your renovation or building project as much as it is in any other area of your life. Now, in Peter Sage's talk, he actually talks about life not being a comfort-centric experience. He thinks a lot of people come here and believe that life is a comfort-centric experience, but he believes, and I tend to agree with him, that life is a growth-centric experience. He actually talks about us all being in earth school and he saw that his time in prison was a practical exam. You know, could he actually do more than just talk the talk that he'd been doing with all of his coaching for the previous 15 or so years? Could he actually walk the walk as well inside this situation of adversity? And so, you know, I think that mindset definitely becomes even more important when we're doing something that really makes us uncomfortable. And that's hard. You know, it is really hard because when that's, you know, when things get hard, we often want to switch back to old habits and ways of doing things that we feel can have some predictability. 
Have you found this yourself, you know, that it's all quite straightforward to do the things that you're supposed to do when it's all going well and you can have your mindset in check and you can support yourself with all the right thoughts, etc. Me too, you know. It's not so simple though when life is throwing curveballs at you, which has definitely been doing a lot over the past 18 months or so. Now, I've mentioned on the podcast previously that I had a full-on 2018 and 2019 personally. Things got quite dire in my personal life. Um, But professionally though, I had to keep charging on and I learned a lot about myself during that time and a lot of it was related to the patterns of behaviour that were firmly entrenched in me as a kid um, that tend to rear their head as my knee-jerk reaction when the chips are down and life gets challenging. Now, don't get me wrong, I had a very privileged childhood and upbringing. I grew up in a really nice part of Sydney. I went to a really great school. I got an amazing education. Uh, I had parents who sacrificed for me and they gave me boatloads of opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly privileged. However, I still notice these patterns of behaviour that exist and they're largely around how I interacted with my parents who they got divorced very unamicably when I was around eight years old and they remained very unamicable beyond that. (laughs) And and I notice patterns in how I deal with situations of stress and volatility um, born from my upbringing as well. I am a ninja compartmentaliser. I compartmentalise certain parts of my life in order to be able to keep other parts running really well. And I know in 2018, 2019, that's what I did. I navigated all the personal stuff, but kept my business going um, and going well by literally compartmentalizing things so that I could do that. Now, this brings me to the events of last week. So something that I I continue to learn as I operate two online businesses now, so Undercover Architect and Live Life Build, It's obviously how visible you end up being and how people then can land in your inbox or on your social media or in your DMs or even publicly visible comments um, and reviews and they can pretty much say whatever they want to say about you, about you personally, about your work, about your words or whatever it is. Now, over the years, I've done a lot of work to build resilience about this and around this. Uh, that compartmentalization strategy that I've always had as a coping strategy as well. I've been doing a lot to try and unravel that um, because whilst it might be helpful in the stress of the immediate moment, it's not helpful long-term because things then go unresolved in the stuff that's in nice little boxes. So for me, it's really about trying to keep opening the boxes and bringing things into the light. Now, at first, you know, if I had a negative comment, you know, in the early years of Undercover Architect, it would send me into spirals. You know, I'd be sitting, I'd be crying, I'd be saying to my husband, how can they say that I'm sitting here and I'm spending all this time and effort, you know, trying to put useful information out into the world and this is the thanks that I get, you know, real woe is me stuff, real, you know, And it would stay with me, it would stick with me for days and for weeks and then that would impact how I'd actually show up in the future and what I'd be like around my family and all that kind of stuff. Now, they say that owning a business is the biggest personal growth experience that you'll have. I actually think that being a parent (laughs) is probably a bigger one because as your kids start to grow and they develop their own sense of who they are and that starts to form, then you realise how much of a mirror of your own behaviour and mindset they can be. You know, the stuff that you're proud of and that you love seeing show up and then the stuff that you're not so proud of as well. There's Nothing more confronting than seeing the traits that you don't like about yourself being thrown in full force at you by a small person that you're raising and living in a house with. Ah, fun and games. Now, as my kids have grown older, they're now 14, 12 and 10, I've become increasingly conscious of what I'm modelling to them because, damn it, they watch what I do and, and follow that 
far more than they listen to what I say. <laughs> it's so inconvenient, <laughs> but it's true. So as the criticism occasionally comes in, and trust me, I don't get anywhere near as much criticism as I know a lot of people online. I've got a lot of friends running online businesses. Um, it can be really tough out there. I don't get anywhere near as much as what some others experience. I do get the standard stuff from other architects who think that I'm cheapening architectural design and cheating the industry and cheating them out of jobs by wanting to teach homeowners to know more about their home design and to know more about the process. I get accusations from very angry builders who tell me that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And interestingly, the warrior keyboards are usually men. Um, however, I've also had women accuse me of not knowing how hard it is in the industry or how hard their personal situation is, um, that it's different for me or a range of other reasons that they feel can justify their position and their opinion of me. Now, what would I tell my kids or a dear friend in a similar situation, you know, receiving this kind of criticism? I'd probably say to them, look, don't let it get to you. You know, in the great words of Tay-Tay, shake it off. <laughs> um, Haters going to hate. Uh, you know, this says more about them than it does about you. And one thing that we frequently say to our kids is hurt people, hurt people. Now, taking that advice is though an entirely different kettle of fish. It can be much more challenging to actually take your own advice than to dish it out. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, it goes back to the idea that I mentioned from the TED Talk by Peter Sage. You know, behaviour follows mindset, not education. So time and time again, I see that mindset makes such a difference in the experience uh, that you have when you're in your reno or building project and it impacts whether you can be solution focused or not. It also sets you up to be brave in your interactions and willing to drive the outcome that you're seeking to achieve. This is the thing. Even the very idea of renovating and building a family home actually requires an optimistic mindset where a future vision can be seen, a future quality of life can be believed and there can be a self-trust in your own resourcefulness to financially fund it and your ability to make the project happen as well and for you to be able to invest financially in, in bringing all of that together. And in actual fact, what I usually see, especially in the homeowners that I work closely with, is that their actual project, it becomes this amazing training ground for just how much they're capable of. And that can cause a really big up level in their lives once they're through that project journey and out the other side. You know, creating a family home is pretty special because it's such a tangible and real and permanent representation of dreaming and planning and taking action. And it's a brilliant training ground for exploring your mindset and what your full potential actually is. So, you know, over the years of doing Undercover Architect and now doing more visible work in the industry with Live Life Build as well, you know, working on my mindset has been the work that I've been doing and also helping the homeowner members that I work with on their mindset has definitely um, been a lot of the work that I've been doing as well. And it's why you hear me talking about this more and more on Undercover Architect and on the podcast um, and in other areas. Now, one of the, you know, I found that when I was having these personal challenges in 2018 and 2019, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of bandwidth for mindset work. I was just kind of getting through day to day, it really was um, a struggle. And yet what little I did have actually recognised that my thoughts weren't serving me and that I had to find a way to have alternative thoughts in order to find my way out of where I was. I knew that I didn't want things to stay the same. So, you know, one of the things that that's great about mindset work is that whilst it's constant, you know, you're always learning, 
it can actually gain such momentum and you can really see the evidence of its results over the long term. So I'm really grateful that I continue to work on it, you know, so that when things like this past week happen, um, you know, and people turn up in my inbox or other places, I just have much better tools to be resilient to it now. And so I wanted to share with you my top three mindset tools or targets that I use at times like this, because I do think that these are relevant to your renovation um, and building journey. And they can similarly be applied when you come across challenges or difficult people, or you've got hurdles that actually feel like dead ends in your project. You know, focusing your mindset in these ways may actually assist with reshaping your thoughts so that you're in a much better position to maintain momentum in your project and figure out what the next best steps are. So the first thing that I focus on is gratitude. Now, of course, this doesn't come naturally. So much of the way that you react in situations is driven from your subconscious, which they believe is largely entrenched by the time you turn seven years old. I remember learning about this after all of my kids were beyond being seven years old and going, oh no, I've completely stuffed them. I think my youngest might've been just under seven. I was like, oh, I've got, maybe I've got a little left, a little time left. Um, you know, and I mean, whilst I don't remember a lot of that time, I know that chronologically my parents having a terrible time, they were, they were having a terrible time of their marriage at that point. And um, everything was pretty much reaching its peak because they separated when I was eight. So you know, my recollection is that there's lots of, there was lots of stress. There was either silence or there was yelling in the house. That doesn't mean though, that it's a true representation of what really was going on at that time, but that's the memory of my experience. And, you know, one of the things that I'm learning is that even though this is all in place before you turn seven, you can actually work with it and you can rewire it, which is really exciting. So I haven't completely stuffed my children. Now, (laughs) um, so from knowing this about kind of my memory of that time and uh, and what I, what, I, what I can recall is I know that my knee-jerk reaction, so that's driven my subconscious, by my subconscious, is that when I get a stroppy email or I get a not-so-great comment or somebody leaving a, a bad review, I feel like I'm in trouble. That's my initial reaction. I feel like I'm that little girl again who's getting into trouble and being yelled at and, you know, potentially not for something that's necessarily her fault, but the upshot is that she's getting yelled at and getting into trouble. And so um, my next reaction after feeling like I'm in trouble is that I want to yell back. I want to attack back. I want to send the attack back. I want to, um, and I, and, and defend myself. But Sometimes also I don't want to send it back in that moment because I'm also a people pleaser, which, you know, many, many of us are. It's something I'm definitely trying to unengineer in my life. And, you know, being a people pleaser means that you get worried about upsetting or offending someone and what the consequences of that might be as well. Now, none of this is conscious, okay? This all happens in a split second, these reactions. And for years, I just had absolutely no self-awareness of this. I'd write the indignant email, I'd defend myself in a meeting, or I'd skulk off quietly, too scared to actually speak up for myself in the situation that I was in. Now, with some self-awareness and the work that I've been doing, I can actually watch, even though it's happening so fast, I can watch the neurons firing like a pinball in a pinball machine and I can see those predictable subconscious reactions. And so I can observe them with curiosity and I can calm them down and I can then start to rewire and create new initial reactions. And the good news is, is that the my subconscious reactions of feeling like I'm in trouble and then wanting to defend myself or attack back, they're not they're happening less and less now. And it's really, really interesting to watch over time. And so I find that focusing on gratitude is actually a really great gateway into 
into this, into helping this improve the situation. Now, there's a lot of scientific research around the benefits of gratitude. You know, if you if you jump on Google and type in scientific research of gratitude, you'll get, find a multitude of studies about its ability to improve relationships, to lower stress, to reduce depression and to increase happiness. And it's been seen to change the physiology of the brain itself. For me, my personal experience with gratitude actually comes from something that I did for seven years over the time that my kids were really little. So I had um, my hubby and I, we had three kids under the age of four. And at the same time as having three kids under the age of four, we, I'd also started an architectural practice with five colleagues that we built up to about 20 staff in two studios across Brisbane and Sydney. And we were also going through our third renovation, which was a really big project. And I remember I was drowning, you know, and I got inspired by something called Project 365. And I uh, started taking a photograph every day of something that I was grateful for and posting it to my Facebook page. And doing that was where I sort of sought out accountability. And you may have actually heard me talk about doing this before. Um, I stopped doing it publicly a couple of years ago. Um, My kids are at the age where, you know, they got to a point where they weren't particularly enamored with me (laughs) posting photographs of them on my Facebook account. Um, so I just save them now privately, uh, but I really love getting the reminders of ones from those seven years that I was doing it every day, um, when they were really little. Uh, and in fact, my reminder today, uh, one of them was from 2012. So nine years ago where my gratitude photo was of them asleep. It was of all of them in their beds and, you know, little children look so angelic when they're asleep, don't they? The caption on this photo, though, it said, I'm grateful that it's 6.30pm and all three kids are asleep. I've had the world's most horrible children today. (laughs) And as I read through the comments underneath the post, I saw that I'd explained that my middle daughter, who would have been about three at the time, she'd had a massive temper tantrum on the floor of Indooroopilly Shopping Town, which is a big shopping centre in Brisbane. And she was attracting a lot of attention as she screamed and she writhed around. And at the same time, my son, who would have been five, was crying his eyes out because he was itchy from a haircut that he'd just had and he was insisting on taking his T-shirt off. And who knows what number three was up to, uh, but no doubt she would have been uh, in on the act. So (laughs) it was too funny. You know, something I would have just completely forgotten about otherwise. Now, I know that this daily act of finding something to be grateful for every day, it saved me during those years when I needed, I just really needed to think differently about my life. I saw magic in moments that had previously been totally mundane. It completely reframed how I experienced my marriage, my kids, our renovations, my work and everything in between. So gratitude is is definitely where I try to go first now. You know, gratitude for my beautiful family and the people that I love gratitude that I have this business, that I've been able to create something that enables me to work this way and to help so many. Grateful for all the feedback that I do get because all feedback is, is is information. It's just simply information. And grateful for those who share with me and others uh, the difference that Undercover Architect has made in their project. What gratitude does is it then enables me to access empathy and compassion that was absent only moments prior when I was worried about feeling like I was in trouble and wanting to attack someone. Now, it's all good to say that what someone says is more about them than anything else. But when you can see that through the eyes of empathy, it's amazing how a pathway gets lit up in neon lights about how 
to respond in the next moments. And so I find that I do a lot of my time, you know, I spend a lot of my time these days trying to intentionally respond rather than simply and subconsciously react. So if you're in a hole or if you're in a difficult patch in your project generally or whatever else is going on in your life at the moment, is there something you can be grateful for? You know, see if that actually helps you rewire your brain and set you up for more positive and more solution finding thoughts. Now, the second thing that I dwell on is this, being visible means being vulnerable. I am not an expert on vulnerability. I think we can all defer to Brene Brown on any info or insight that we need into vulnerability. She's got some amazing and very succinct comments on vulnerability. So I'm going to quote a few here. Vulnerability is the only bridge to build connection. When you shut down vulnerability, you shut down opportunity. Vulnerability is not about winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. And lastly, in our culture, we associate vulnerability with emotions we want to avoid, such as fear, shame and uncertainty. Yet too, we often lose sight of the fact that vulnerability is also the birthplace of joy, belonging, creativity, authenticity and love. Now, I personally know that vulnerability can feel super uncomfortable and it takes courage, but it's also an incredibly powerful pathway to growth that doesn't make it easy. You know, a couple of weeks ago, and if you're on my email list, you would have received an email. In it, I had a photograph of my youngest uh, when she was about three years old. She's wandering through our paddocks and she's got our dog Kuma uh, at her side, who sadly is no longer with us. And I spoke in this email about achieving dreams and about my personal experience of achieving dreams. And I wrote this email in the hope of showing how dreams can reward preparation and perseverance. And I shared some of my family's own experience with achieving this long-held dream that we'd had for over nine years of moving to the Byron Hinterland. And this photograph that I'd taken at that time on that early evening, watching my three-year-old wander through a paddock with our dog, it really represented a moment of me thinking, oh my gosh, I'm here. Like we did it. And I was pinching myself. I got so many beautiful responses to that email, gorgeous people in the undercover architect community who, you know, some had been having tough times in their projects and they said that they found it was the boost that they needed to take that next step uh, and to reinvigorate their energy generally. And there were lots of lovely thanks as well. And I was super, super grateful. And I also got a response from someone (laughs) that said, and I quote, the transformation from architect to nauseating motivational speaker is almost complete. Now, that person is definitely not going to like this podcast episode. Now, my initial reaction, like the pattern I mentioned, was to regret the email that I'd sent. Thought I was in trouble, wanted to attack, regret that I'd sent the email at all. The next was to think in an annoyed way and a a hurt way as well. You know, hey, mate, why don't you just unsubscribe rather than take the time to send that email? And then trying to do the work gratitude and vulnerability, it meant instead that I sent a reply back that said, just here for the reno and building advice, hey, with a wink emoji. I actually, though, I wanted to send him a really big hug through the email. You know, that email hurt me, but I could also see that it came from someone who potentially at some level may be hurting as well. Now, I've seriously, I have got some seriously big goals for both Undercover Architect and for Live Life Build. I'm not kidding when I say that I want to change the way that we design, build and renovate our family homes. 
so that we can all create homes that work, that feel great and that you feel great in and that everyone can enjoy the process of making that happen. And whilst this is about helping you individually, I don't only do it just for you individually. I do this for all of us. How you create your home and the choices that you make and the living environment that you create for yourself, it actually impacts how well you feel and how much your home can restore you as a sanctuary. And as a result, that impacts how you show up in your life. And then that impacts the society in which you live and interact with and contribute to. And the choices and all of the things that you do about creating your home, that also impacts our planet and our climate, as well as creating the physical built environment that we all interact with on an everyday basis. Every time someone builds or renovates their home, they throw a pebble in the pond and we really have no idea how far those ripples go on for. But I know that they do have huge reach geographically and generationally as well in so many forms. So this really matters to me. You know, it's what gets me out of bed in the morning and I'm super impatient. So, you know, meanwhile, I I see suburbs being filled with poorly designed and poorly built homes that our governments totally sanction in a system of careless and short term and poor legislation that they've set up. So to achieve these goals, I actually have to continue to grow my visibility, you know, and that means I'm going to be continuing to have to stick my head up above the fence which means it's going to be exposed for someone to lop it off or take a punt of it, at it. Now, I am vulnerable to that in my visibility and I then have to work out how vulnerable I'm going to make myself in talking about this stuff generally because as I become more visible, I actually think that I have to be more vulnerable and open in order to be able to reach those who really need my help so that I'm not just this visible talking head that you see all the time but someone that you feel you can actually connect with and that you can trust for help in your journey. So I'm feeling super vulnerable sharing this info in this podcast episode. And perhaps by now, you know, maybe everybody's tuned out. There's only three or four of us here. Uh, Everyone else is gone and it's going to be totally okay. And for the three or four of us are here, you know, maybe you found this helpful and, you know, it's helpful in your project and it's helpful in your life, in which case it's totally worth it then um, that I'm sharing this with you. I think this applies to you as well though, you know, because you need to know and expect that the more visible you are and the more you step outside of your comfort zone to be seen and to be heard and to have your words matter in whatever capacity that is, and that's definitely going to be required of you in your project, that's going to be coupled with vulnerability. You know, if you want to be in the driver's seat for your reno or your new build journey and be an active collaborator in making it happen, then your project journey and you being able to create the future home that you dream of, it's going to rely on you being more visible. So you can be seen and you can be heard. So what I'm learning more and more is that in expressing my vulnerability, it actually makes me more resilient to the not so great comments and not so great experiences. It's like, you know, what what I was doing before, you know, wearing this suit of armor and trying to shield myself against it, all of it, it just meant that the chinks that people did put in it, they were more permanent. And that comment then would rear its head for days and weeks later, as I looked at that chink over and over again, to remind me of the not so nice things that somebody said to me or about me. What I find now instead is it's this much, you know, it's much more of a case of processing it, of allowing it to actually flow through and then letting it go just letting it go. Okay. Now, thirdly, the last thing that I've actually recently added to my mindset work, and I'm tracking particularly in these kinds of scenarios um, that come up is this question. All right. I ask myself, who am I needing and wanting to be 
for what's next. This one is actually proving to be the most challenging though, because I feel like I'm personally entering uncharted territory for myself. What I've found is that, you know, my previous working career, I've been in the architectural industry for over 25 years now. I've always sort of worked as the fixer and the doer. You know, for a long time, I was the right-hand woman of a male boss. um, And I was just the one who helped them get stuff sorted and get things done. And even when I had my own practice with five business partners, you know, one of my business partners was my boss from my previous workplace. And so the patterns of our interaction were very strongly entrenched and just sort of played out even as business partners. Building Undercover Architect, by contrast, um, as a startup, you know, and you're trying to bootstrap it from the beginning, it naturally means that you end up being the doer and the fixer for a lot of things. Uh, you know, I, before I had a team, I learned how to build and work with websites, you know, the myriad of other technology that you see and need to use in an online business. And to be frank with you, I've never thought of myself as a really great manager, even though, you know, I used to manage teams of around 15 or so people um, in my working life. So there's been big learnings around all of that and about managing people and also about sort of how I see myself and, you know, what I say I'm good at, not good at. And, you know, we have a super small team at Undercover Architect. And so we're now looking at, you know, how does it need to grow and how will we best structure things? And so, you know, that question of who do I need and want to be in order to navigate, you know, for what's next is something that really comes up quite a lot. And to quote something that I learned from Lisa Kordoff, who I actually had on the podcast in episode 195, I've definitely been reviewing how I can be less of the doer um, in my business and in my life and more of the driver. Uh, Because, you know, like I said, being a doer just comes so naturally to me and I suspect it probably comes naturally to you as well. And being a driver is new. But if I'm asking myself that question of who do I need and want to be for what's next, then it's a really interesting idea to play with. And I am trying to play with it. You know, I'm trying not to get too serious and it be all about getting top marks and being perfect and pleasing everyone and getting the pat on the back and all of that kind of stuff. I'm trying to have more fun and to approach these things as a bit of an adventure, you know, really just being being, seeing what that feels like. And interestingly, it's actually proving to enable me to be more productive. Um, and, and it's a helpful way of sort of tackling things, particularly things that are new and um, can be quite confronting at time. Now, I've also been learning about the difference between the do have be model of living, which I was firmly entrenched in versus the be do have model. Now, I'm not sure who came up with this first. I think I first heard about it from either James Wedmore or Jim Fortin, who are both online entrepreneurs. So let me just explain a little bit. So the do have be model, do have be, that's based on the idea that most of us think that the road to the things that we want to achieve is that we need to do the things that we need to do in order to have the things that we want to have to then be the person that we want to be. And this is how I was kind of living my life. I've got to do the things to have the things to be the thing, to be the person. Yeah. The alternative to this though is a model that flips it and that's the be do have model and so what that suggests is to actually have the things that we want at the end of all of this um, is that we first need to be the person that would have those things and then we need to do the things that that person would do from that place so you know it's a really interesting thing to think about that model and I've been experimenting with it a bit as well and I want to go back to Peter Sage's comment about life being a growth centric experience and all of us being here for earth school. I, I actually think that renovating and building your home is a growth centric experience on steroids. 
It requires you to be operating outside of your comfort zone, to be putting a lot on the line personally and financially, to create something that's relatively permanent that you're then going to put your family in to live your lives together. And it can look a long way from creating a simple shelter that's safe for us, yet it's really driven by some very primal needs uh, that are combined with very strong aspirations that we have for a better future, for higher goals and a much bigger vision for our lives. And you may find that who you need to be to create the home that you're dreaming of is not who you are right now, that there is a confidence that you need or a different mindset or a set of tools or a framework to follow or something else. You know, whatever it is, it's an interesting exercise to ponder on and to approach with curiosity. I really encourage you to be kind to yourself when you do this. I see so many, especially women, being really hard on themselves in their project journey. There's a perception that, you know, it should just be really straightforward. It shouldn't be this complicated. Surely anyone can do this. You should just innately get it and it shouldn't be hard and you shouldn't feel emotionally impacted by it. I want you to be kind. You know, I want you to operate with curiosity inwardly and outwardly. So outwardly, I believe that you can never ask too many questions when it comes to your project journey and the people that you're working with. Asking questions, it'll get answers in two ways. Uh, It'll either get answers the answers that you need to the information that you're actually looking for. Um, Or the second way is it'll give you a reading on someone who is choosing to be impatient with your questions and then is not going to be a good fit in supporting you in your project. Inwardly, asking lots of questions can sometimes throw up some interesting self-discoveries and learnings that can be useful to build on. I know I personally found that. Now, I suspect I'm going to have a vulnerability hangover from this episode, but hey, nothing fun comes from staying inside your comfort zone, does it? So let's embrace it. And I promised you some info on the checklist that you need in your project. So I'm going to do that now. So as mentioned in the last few episodes, at the time of recording this episode, I'm actually rebuilding Home Method, my flagship program. Part of that rebuild is that I'm adding a range of new bonuses, including checklists, templates, PDF guides, and other helpful info. And so all of the checklists that I'll mention here, they're either already inside Home Method or they're going to be inside the rebuilt version very shortly. But I figured if I let you know about them, you can then either decide that you you know want to join Home Method when it's right for you, or you can go on a hunt yourself to see if you can track down a version of this um, somewhere else that you you know might find helpful. So whatever you choose, it's entirely up to you. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch. It's not Uh, it's not a representation. There's actually a lot more um, that's going into Home Method or already in there. But I've grabbed um, eight specific ones here that I wanted to mention um, that I think will be helpful to you. So the first one is a checklist for interviewing designers and architects. Now, I find that homeowners can really struggle with in the moment of those initial exciting conversations about their project, you know, and really sort of thinking about all the possibilities. They can then forget to rem- like to ask all the, the range of questions that they need to so that they can actually collect some meaningful information to help them make a better choice about their potential designer. And also then to be able to compare designers with each other if they're trying to figure out how to choose one over another. So if you have an interview template or an interview checklist, that means that you've got something you can work through and you can remember all the important questions that you need to and then be able to focus the conversation where it actually needs to be so that you can determine if that designer is the best fit for you. Now, another checklist is your brief builder. So this is more of a template than a checklist uh, and it's a document that you can use to create your own design brief for your project. So 
In episode 196, I take you through how to create a design brief and include some specific questions in that episode that you can ask yourself to help shape your project brief. Um, And so I'll pop a link to that episode in the resources. You can also grab that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 196 and you'll be able to listen to that or read the transcript and see the questions to ask yourself to build your own design brief. Otherwise, um, we've actually got a brief builder um, as a template inside Home Method and it goes into a lot more detail uh, around building a really comprehensive design brief for your project. Um, Now, it's also worthwhile having a checklist for ideal room dimensions. And so this is the thing. I find that it's definitely helpful to know what recommendations actually exist based on experience with family homes for things, you know, associated with your room sizes and anything that you're putting into them as well. Because this means that you can actually use this to get started on your design process or you can also use it to audit the work that your designer is doing. It can mean that you um, then don't overlook something that's important or ultimately become disappointed in your finished home due to the dysfunctional size or proportion of a space or a room or having stuffed up a dimension within it. Now in the rebuilt home method and I shared a little behind the scenes of this on my social media the other day, I'm actually including a new range of room notes that I've created and they go through each room individually uh, to identify ideal dimensions of the overall space and then also the things within it. And there's a lot of other helpful information on there as well. And then there's going to be space that you can jot down your own thoughts so that you can then collate that for your own design intentions uh, and transpose it then across to your brief builder so that you've basically creating that information in a really intentional way. Um, Now, another checklist that's useful is the one that shows you all the things that you have to choose in your project that you can just work through then like a shopping list. There are tens of thousands of decisions to make in any project and that that can actually be really overwhelming for many. And I've personally found that if at the outset, like right from the start, if you can actually get a list of all the various items, fixtures and finishes that you're going to need to choose, homeowners can actually find that really comforting and be much more proactive in their project as a result because things can be a lot calmer and more methodical. And rather than you just working on one thing at a time and then finding out what you next need to choose, you can be looking for various things simultaneously um, because you're just aware of them and you've got a list to work through that you that tells you all the things that you're going to need to think about. Um, you can also find during a project journey that there's periods of downtime where you might be waiting for the next person or the next stage to be ready to proceed with. And you know, having a shopping list like this means that you can actually be ticking things off and maintaining momentum in your project even during those downtimes. And if you're anything like me, uh, the process of ticking things off a list as done just feels great. Um, And it motivates you to get more stuff done as well. So having a list to work through can actually feel really empowering in your project journey. Uh, Now, also worthwhile is a guide that suggests the minimum recommendations for detailing and selections in a home so that early pricing input can be based on realistic info. Now, any home design, even at sketch or concept stage, is going to be made up of a bunch of details and finishes and things like that that can really change how much the project's going to cost to build. And when early costing input is being given on a project, it may be based on assumptions that aren't aligned with what you were envisaging for your project. It can be really helpful to have some suggestions about what to include and a document that you can use as a prompt to then tailor your own ideas for your home. And that way you can actually create a descriptive written document that can accompany your early concept drawings, but actually have it fill out uh, and, and deal with a lot of assumptions overall and hopefully then make that early costing advice far more relevant to what you want, you specifically want in your home. 
The next one is, you know, as with interviewing your architect or designer, actually having a checklist of questions to ask your builder is definitely useful. I've had hundreds and hundreds of homeowners purchase the Choose Your Builder mini course, which does exactly this. It gives you the checks to do and the questions to ask. And we've also got a builder's interview checklist inside Home Method that's been there for many years. Um, but the rebuilt version of Home Method is going to have an improved uh, builder interview checklist. So that's going to be really good. And as I said, with the architect and the designer, you know, actually having a checklist when you do your interviews, it means that you just don't overlook asking for information that's really important and that you need for you to actually be able to appropriately assess whether this builder is going to be the right fit for your project. More than that, though, I've found that homeowners really find it useful to have this printed checklist in front of them for a few other reasons. Of course, now, like I said, means you can cover everything that you need to. But in working through a document like this, like actually having it, you know, on your lap or I've even seen some homeowners pop it on a clipboard that they take to the meeting, you actually present to the builder as a really super, you know, you're super invested in your project. You've done a lot of personal work to get uh, prepared and ready and in understanding the overall process, just handling it far more professionally. And that totally changes the way that you and the builder can interact and it's going to flush out any issues far faster as well. I've also had a lot of homeowners say to me that they've really appreciated being able to blame me for having so many questions. And I'm so okay with that because I am always in your corner when it comes to you getting the information that you need to make your project better. But it can feel a bit uncomfortable, you know, especially if you're not used to interviewing anyone to then just be sitting there and sort of asking them questions about them, their work and their business. And a lot of homeowners worry about feeling, you know, like they're, they're drilling the builder for all this information. So, you know, be sure, like you can blame undercover architect, totally happy with you doing that. And then go ahead and get the information that you need so that you can make a good decision. Now I'm going to jump into construction and I want to mention two checklists that I think are super useful. So the first is a framing checklist. Now the framing stage, it's a really big milestone in any construction project. It sets the bones of what's going to get lined with the finishes to create your home, both internally and externally. And once those bones are hidden within the walls, then they become really hard and uh, and expensive to change. Um, but what I find is that looking at framing can be confusing for a homeowner and knowing what to look for can be hard. So a framing checklist will help you be on site, be able to review if there are any issues before progress continues. This isn't a checklist to identify quality. It will help you, but it's it's that's not what this is about. This is a because your building certifier or your building surveyor or even your engineer, they're the ones responsible for checking the quality of the framing to ensure that it's been built appropriately and according to Australian standards or, or to your approvals or wherever you're located. But you will need to check if you've missed anything, all right, uh, or if the builder has missed anything and if things are as per your drawings and what you're expecting before it all gets wrapped up. And so the framing checklist definitely helps you be able to do that. Now, the next one is a pre-completion checklist. So pre-completion is another really big milestone in your project. It's at the pointy end of getting, you know, being close to getting your house back. And so having a checklist of all of the things to review at this point, it can be incredibly helpful to prevent you from missing something. And 
what you'll find is that pre-completion is a stage where it's a lot easier to get the builder to take action at this point than to handle it through defects when they, you know, they've moved on to another project, you've moved it back into the house and they have to make time to come back with you and potentially organise other trades as well and juggle that between their other projects. So dealing with any issues whilst everyone is still in full momentum on your project uh, and on site, that can be much more straightforward. And that's why a comprehensive pre-completion review checklist can be super useful because it can help you do a really thorough job of that. All right, so that's it for those checklists. And there were eight that I mentioned. Now, as I said up front, there's loads more checklists, templates and guides um, that are going to be inside the rebuilt version of Home Method as bonuses. If you have any questions or there's anything you want to know about Home Method, what's in it and that kind of stuff, just shoot me an email at hello at undercoverarchitect.com or you can DM me on Instagram and I'll reply to you there. Um, as I've been previously mentioning on the podcast on the last few episodes, once this rebuild is published, Home Method's going to be increasing in price. Uh, that's going to be around late October, so um, not it's it's pretty much soon after this episode will be released. So um, yeah, so just be aware of that. And after this episode, um, you're going to have a chance now to over the next few weeks to catch up on any ep- episodes that you've missed or re-listen to any information that you want because I'm actually going to be taking a break for a little while on the podcast and we're just going to have a little bit of a break, okay? So if you are interested in joining Home Method but you're waiting for that deadline date to see if you want to jump in or not, then um, obviously the podcast won't be coming out each week. So just be sure to stay tuned to Undercover Architects social media, check out the website. Hopefully you're on, you know, you receive my emails. I'll be sharing it in those avenues. Um, but as I said before, by the time this episode is live, it's going to be pretty soon that the, um, rebuild will be published and we'll be um, putting the price up. Um, also, um, by the time that this episode is released, I will have run my free online workshop about the four factors that can make or break your project. Um, so if, if you're listening to this, uh, episode, uh, between, you know, middle and late October, 2021, Um, you'll still be able to get access to the recording of that workshop. So you can grab that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash four, F-O-U-R. One thing that I know about my workshops is that the Q&As are always jam-packed with great questions, which are worth checking out as much as the workshop content itself. So make sure you head that um, there to grab that replay. Now, this episode's been a longer one of me chatting I'm not going to share a member story in this episode, but we are publishing them on Undercover Architects YouTube and on the website. So if you're keen to check out, watch those member stories, hear what others have said, um, then make sure that you head there and you can do that. Now, bring it back around full circle. Remember the question that I asked you right at the beginning of this episode. Why do we do what we do when we know what we know? Have a think about this as you go about your day, your week, and your project. What do you know and yet you're doing something that's counter to that? And where is that showing up for you, especially in your renovation or building journey? Now, I'm going to get this recording across to my podcast producer before I chicken out and decide to scrap this episode altogether. Remember, if you'd like to grab a transcript of this podcast episode and have a reminder of the eight checklists that I've mentioned here, please head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 218. That's the numbers 218. You can grab your free PDF download there. And it's also got links to the other resources that I mentioned in this episode. Please share this podcast episode with family, friends, colleagues, even strangers, basically anyone that you know it may help. 
so that we can get this information and knowledge into the ears and hands of as many homeowners as possible and improve their experience of designing, building and renovating their family homes. I love hearing the stories of those who found this podcast thanks to the generosity of another listener. It is just awesome. Now, if you haven't left a review on the Undercover Architect podcast, especially if you listen on iTunes, I would be so grateful if you please could. It really makes a difference in enabling this podcast to reach others that it can help. And it also ensures that I can continue to grow the podcast and get amazing guests and information on here as well. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which lands each Tuesday morning to access helpful information and education in your project journey so that you can get it right as you design, build or renovate your family home. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.